If you'll join with me, our scripture reading today is Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In our Pew Bibles, this is page 976. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, everybody. I've had the, the joy of being able to teach a few times here at Regen, and I think each time it's always a challenge, especially so this time around with two little ones and an a eight-month-old whose sleep patterns aren't quite sorted out yet. But uh, Luke was asking me this morning, like, hey, how are you feeling about teaching this morning? And I, I just feel excited to share with you all uh, what the Lord has for us this morning. So thrilled to, to be able to teach this morning. For, for those of you who may be rejoining us after some time, we're in the middle of a series that we're going through right now on Regen's values. Those values are something that we hope that in, in this teaching series will draw us together as a church. Uh, they'll unite us around and, and remind us of who we are and why we exist as a church at Regeneration. But I think it, the, the hope is also that as we go through this series on our church values that we would be propelled forward in unity into the season ahead. One thing I, I really love about our values as a church is the fact that while each value means something pretty essential on its own independently, there's an even greater richness and meaning when we take all of these values together in their combination. I think that they inform each other, they reinforce each other, they deepen one another. Uh, so before we, we jump into this, though, let's pray together. Oh Lord, we seek to hear from you this morning. We desire that your uh, word would come alive, that our eyes would be opened. Holy Spirit, would you enable that? Would the, the words that are shared this morning uh, come from you? Would whatever is uh, not of you fall away and whatever is of you uh, endure? So, Father, would you bless uh, your word as it goes out this morning? We pray this in your name, amen. All right, so we've gone through this series on, on Regen's uh, values. So far, we've touched on integrated scripture. That was Justin's week a couple weeks ago. Uh, last week, we had Mike McKenna sharing on whole life service. And I am blessed to be able to share with you, Regen, about our third value, thriving diversity. Uh, we thought it would be fun to have the white guy come up here and share about thriving diversity. <laughs> no, but really, our, our desire is that this would be a gathering of believers, a place where everyone can feel welcomed and feel valued. I think it's appropriate that we've tackled the values that we have in the order that we have as well. I think it's enhanced and properly contextualized when we talk about thriving diversity, when we have started with integrated scripture and when we have committed ourselves to lives of service that, that leave nothing back our whole lives uh, are part of the service. So let's, I want to do something a little different than we normally do here and get a little participatory 
I'm gonna give all of you introverts a chance to apply one of the takeaways of the message even before it starts, which is letting you appreciate and greatly esteem those who are very different from you, the extroverts among us, who uh, might have a desire to spontaneously express themselves here. So, little rapid fire question for you all. What comes to mind when you think of the word diversity? Not all at once, but if you want to just say one word that comes to mind when you think of the word diversity. Did all our extroverts stay home? Anything, there's, no, there's, there's literally no wrong answer here. Yes? The worldwide search? The worldwide search? Church, church yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mosaic, Mosaic. yeah. Oakland, yeah, Oakland is very diverse. Inclusion, life stage, yeah, there's, there's lots of forms of diversity. I think those are all things, was there another? Creation, Creation yes. Those are all things more or less that, you know, we, we, we expect to think of uh, when we talk about diversity. And I think most of our views of diversity have been shaped predominantly, I would say, by our American cultural experiences, by our families, by our workplaces, by the media that we consume. And it's not without good reason that that's like where we're deriving a lot of our understanding of diversity, of what it is, because that's where diversity actually gets talked about significantly. In the church, it's not a very common topic, and even at Regen, you know, it's one of our four values, but how often are we actually talking about this? Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said this back in, in 1960, and unfortunately, it's pretty much still the case today. He said, I think it is one of the tragedies of our nation, one of the shameful tragedies, that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hours, in Christian America. We have workplaces where people are represented. We have public spaces where people are represented, but churches tend to be pretty uh, segregated. But when we talk about diversity, we're not just talking about race and ethnicity. I want to be very clear about that. We'll get into this a little bit more in a minute, but the Bible talks about diversity in bigger and I would say even more challenging ways than just race and ethnicity. The church in America is also incredibly fragmented, not just around race and ethnicity, but around what you could call ideological political, theological lines. Every year there's more and more and more denominations that pop up in this country. Uh, it's hard to get a, an accurate estimate of this, but they, there's somewhere probably between 200 and 300 different Protestant denominations in the U.S. alone. And that's not even counting all the non-denominational churches, which are kind of the more common thing anymore these days as well. But what happens in that sort of environment is you have these pockets of Christians uh, that form who share more and more and more in common with each other than ever before. And we know churches also attract or repel people for reasons that are completely separate from what's in their statements of belief. Uh, our consumer culture, sadly, has definitely made its way into the church as well, where everybody wants things how they want things, uh, you know, the style of music that we want in church. People choose a church over that. We choose the level of formality we enjoy. We choose churches where, you know, you can find someone to date, you, a church where the pastor tells good jokes. It's like you find the, the right church for you. Um, and let's be honest, 
for many, it's about finding a church where they can find people a lot like them. It's comfortable. It's human nature, but what it results in is actually sort of this tribalistic microculture church that forms. And that's further and further from what true diversity is. So diversity in the church is not a super common Sunday morning topic. Some might prefer it that way, maybe some of you do. Not because anyone's against diversity in principle, but because you might think it's not a core gospel idea. I think others in these times especially where things are so polarized might prefer to not really touch on this in the church. Uh, People might feel uneasy about it because they feel like it's either signaling alignment with a particular political or social perspective or that it's promoting some sort of extra biblical doctrine that's beyond what the Bible teaches. My hope in this message is that we get the chance to challenge those with left-leaning tendencies and right-leaning tendencies alike. In either case here, I think that there is work to be done on multiple sides of this. First, beginning with elevating the very meaning of the concept of diversity from what we have learned in the world and in society to something higher than that. And then taking us from there, from mere acknowledgement that diversity has a place um, in Christianity, all the way through to our destination, which uh, I'll share is the big idea of this message. It's this. Diversity doesn't just matter to God. When understood biblically, diversity is actually at the very heart of God's loving nature, of his redemptive designs for the world, and of his longing for us as his people. And I'd like to do that today by taking us through a few different parts of the story of God's relationship to humanity. Or I could even say, before even the story begins. And taking us all the way through the Tower of Babel, through Pentecost, all the way to the very end of the story, to the book of Revelation, before closing with some words that I think we should hear about what God desires for Regeneration Church specifically uh, and what diversity might mean for us here and now. So, we've got loads to cover. Buckle up. Let's really jump in now. Part one, before the beginning, God himself is unity in diversity. We all know in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But before the beginning, there was God. And who is God anyways? How often do we actually reflect on that and ponder that? He's sort of the background character who's all always there within scripture. It might actually be the most important question that we ask ourselves, a question that has enormous consequences. It's a question that we could probably easily spend a whole year as a church just focused on that, because who God is is big. But one of the many wonderful things that God is, is a relational God. He's in relationship to creation, and he's in relationship to himself, and an unchanging trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally existing, mutually glorifying, loving, honoring, diversity in community. Does that sound right to you? Yes, God is in himself, unity in diversity, and diversity within unity. He's three distinct persons, 
in one Godhead. It's here that any theology that we develop about community, unity, and diversity should really begin. And I just want to pause for a second because I think, especially for those of us who have maybe been in the church for a long time, who grew up in the church, we can probably just accept that as a normal thing. Oh yeah, the Trinity, it's three in one, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We put it on the back shelves of our minds. But I think we should pause and consider the beauty of this, the mystery of this, the wonder of who our God is. Let's take a look with fresh eyes and allow the strange majesty of God to take you deeper into worship. He is holy, completely other than us. He's not made in our image. As much as we might superimpose our own 21st century framework of mind, our, our own categories and judgments on God, for example, that a loving God couldn't possibly allow this or that to happen or that a good God would surely behave in you know, these particular ways, which somehow seem to align with my own views of how I think things should be. He is not ours to define. He has no category to fit into other than his own. When we look at, at Moses in the book of Exodus, when he encounters God at a burning bush, and God sends Moses to go to Pharaoh, and Moses asks of God, he says, if the Israelites ask who you are that has sent me, what should I tell them? God answers really simply. He tells him, Eye, Asher, Eye. I am who I am. God is the manifest self-existent one who was, who is, who is to come. How often do we remember this church, that this is why we're here, to worship that God? It's good to remember that God is great, that he can be three in one, that he is incomparable, our eternal Lord, worthy of our worship and our lives. And to think, we're made in the image of that God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God gives to men and women something of his nature, not just individually, but collectively as a diverse community called to be as he is, mutually loving, honoring, supporting, because God is those things in himself. What I hope we see, Regent, is that God has invited us to share in that same kind of oneness that he knows within himself. No less than that. Jesus prays for this. Listen, explicitly he prays for this in John chapter 17 on the night uh, that he's betrayed and he's praying in the garden. So listen to this really astonishing, bold prayer for oneness. Remember, this is what Jesus asked for before he laid down his life. He said, speaking to the Father in verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And continuing on in verses 20 to 23, I do not ask for these things only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. What does Jesus do? He asks that we would be protected so that we might be one as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. He asks that we would be in his triune fellowship, part of that. And he says that he's given us glory. What's the reason? What does Jesus say? That we, his followers, who have put our trust in Jesus may be one as the Holy Trinity is one. Now let me interrupt myself halfway through this message to make sure we're pretty clear on definitional terms. When I speak of diversity within the church, what are we talking about? Diversity in the church is about the presence of meaningful differences between people. And yes, it does include ethnicity and race, but it is deeper and richer and more beautiful than even that. It's all the variety within humanity that God celebrates and he loves. He created that. It's the amazing differences in how God has made us as individuals. Think physical differences, personality differences, giftings and abilities. It's the complex kaleidoscope and blend of cultures that each of us carry within ourselves. Cultures that have unique strengths and virtues and vulnerabilities. It's the weak and the strong. It's the minimum wage earners and the tech salary earners. It's those who live alone and those who wish they had more time alone. It's the meek and the bold, the exalted ones and the least of these all coming together in a blessed communion of saints. Isn't that beautiful? In every way that humanity chooses to distinguish and divide itself, God has called us to seek unity in the body of Christ. And why is that? It's because Jesus is the great unifier. In John 12, 32, he says this, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. We'll go into this a little bit more later, but he is over all. And under his lordship, we can be unified, united, because he becomes the center of our identities, both individually and collectively. No longer at the core of our identities are all these other labels and, and distinctives that we claim for ourselves. Jesus is at the core of our lives. And when we talk about thriving diversity, it's about more than just the presence of all of these wonderful differences in a single space. That's easy. We can pack this whole church with lots of different kinds of people. But there's something more to it than that. It's about what goes on in that diverse space. To put it most simply, it's love for one another. Not in spite of our differences, but for those differences. I'll say it again. It's love for one another, not in spite of our differences, but for our differences. It's the God-ordained humble embrace 
appreciation, honoring, inclusion, valuing of these differences that comes from that Trinitarian, voluntary, self-giving love that Jesus has given to us first and foremost and that we then give to one another. I hope you're as moved by this as I am. I'm deeply moved by it and the beauty of it. Let's go to part two. The wrong kind of unity, a tower of Babel. Let's read Psalm 133 together. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Church, there is a true blessedness to unity, a goodness and a pleasantness to being together. I still remember the joy of returning to gathering in person after our pandemic pause. I'm sure many of you can viscerally sense that too. We were all separate. We were all scattered, worshiping in our own homes and virtually, but there's something unique and beautiful about being gathered together and worshiping together as one. I'll, I'll leave to you to unravel the Aaron's oily beard comparison and what's so good about that. Apparently it's a very good thing as well. I, I will say dry beards are no fun, so that is something. But I, I think for as much as we know about unity, for as much as we can all say, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to, to be united and we can align ourselves to God's desire for oneness and we can all nod our heads and acknowledge the importance of togetherness, we also know that attempts at unity can also go horribly, horribly wrong. And often what passes for unity in the church and unity in the world as well is assimilation. It's conformity. It's uniformity. It's something that we see God actually pushing against throughout the entire Bible. And I think it's because where you find these things, especially where assimilation and uniformity are either enforced or just even strongly encouraged, what you're seeing is a movement away from God's desires for our flourishing and away from a closer reflection of that image of God, of diversity within unity. And that brings us to the story of Babel. How many of you are familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel? It's a story that for some reason gets a whole bunch of airtime in like children's church. But once in, in like adult Bible teaching and learning, it's sort of just a, an afterthought or like, like a footnote. But it's actually this absolutely critical passage to our understanding of God's relationship to humanity uh, and, and what God desires for the world in terms of civilization, in terms of societal order, but especially in terms of the kingdom of this world contrasted to the kingdom of God. So there, I, I feel like studying about this was just so um, rich uh, and, and such a pleasure. My, my brain was lighting up because th this story is actually linked to so much across the whole Bible. For example, did you know that the word for Babel is actually the same word, just translated differently, as the word for Babylon? So throughout the Bible, when you hear about Babylon, whether that's in the prophets whether that's um, in the book of Revelation, you're supposed to kind of think about this story. So next time you're reading through these parts of the Bible and you see the word Babylon referred to, when Israel is in exile, we're to remember this story of the Tower of Babel. So 
it's a great and key piece of scripture to understand well, and dare I say, to integrate into our lives. As a, yeah, thank you. <laughs> One of our values, integrated scripture. Before we dig in, though, by way of reminder, I want to bring to your mind what has happened so far leading up to this story in the book of Genesis. Let's go back to Adam and Eve. When God created Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, just after we're told that humans are made in the image of God, it's the passage that we read already, we're told in that same chapter, verse 28, that part of being his image bearers involves being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. God's finished up this initial act of creation, but he's entrusted humanity with this ongoing creative work that he wants to co-create with us. And his command now is to scatter, fill the earth, which is seen by many as this implicit command actually to be diverse. But then we have six chapters later, the flood. God chooses Noah and his family to survive the flood, and they're told immediately after the flood, when they're, they're getting off of the ark and going back into the world, uh, they're given the same command in chapter 9. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we're told that the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And these three were the sons of Noah. And from these people, the whole earth were dispersed. So this command for all of his image bearers to fill the earth, multiply, disperse, scatter is there. It's repeated. But yet we find ourselves in a very different place when we talk about the Tower of Babel. That starts in chapter 11. So let's read these nine verses. Now the whole earth had one language, the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them, and from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. If you're like me, when you've read this story of Babel in the past, you might have wondered, like, what... What is God actually so upset with here? Doesn't it seem kind of lovely on the surface? You have society coming together. You have everybody unified around this vision to build something incredible. People speaking the same language. No confusion, no hostility. Aren't these things that God would want? Why does God find it so necessary to intervene here? There are actually reasons to believe based on the, the original language. In, in Hebrew, 
that are used here, that the work of building the tower wasn't actually some feat of public spiritedness or voluntary, you know, collective effort happening there. There are phrases like, make bricks, which actually have strong allusions to slavery and forced labor. It's the same language that was used in the book of Exodus when the, when the Israelites are slaves to Egypt, to Pharaoh, and they're told, come let us make bricks. It's, it's the same, it's the only place that that is used in that exact same form. So there are these strong allusions actually to slavery and to forced labor. And there's a general undertone throughout this passage of forced unity, of exploitation, of injustice throughout the passage within the original language. And that helps us to see that when it talks about nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them in that verse. It says it's not really about God being a technophobe and saying, you know, I don't want people to progress too much because then, you know, that'll, that'll be threatening to me. It's about a concentration of power behind great injustice that if left unchecked will lead to even greater suffering and sin. Which remember, what happened right before this? The flood. That was God's attempt to address violence and injustice and sin run rampant in the world. God wants to intervene to prevent that from happening again. Already in 11 chapters in Genesis, we've seen this pattern emerge. You see in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve choosing their own definitions. What is good and what is bad? And the results are disastrous. In Babel, humanity chooses what they think unity should look like. And it's also disastrous. Beneath this seemingly wonderful surface of an empire, there's this terrible dystopia that's at work. And it's a unity that's built around an empire that's engrossed in glorifying its own name. It's a unity of rebellion against God and what God has commanded. Let's see, let's go back to verse number four again. It says, Then they said, Come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They are utterly and completely rejecting their role and their blessing as image bearers. To scatter, to disperse, to fill the earth with diversity, to glorify God. This is humanity's attempt to deify its own cultural heritage and homogenize humanity to make everything uniformly one. God's desire is to have a unified humanity. Let's be honest about that. God's desire is to have a unified humanity, but not like this. Babel is enforced uniformity. It's a smothering of diversity. And we know diversity goes hand in hand with God's blessing and favor as image bearers. What do we see immediately following the story of the Tower of Babel? At Babel, God has just mercifully intervened to save humanity from itself, breaking up this rebellious, disastrous unity by confusing their language and doing for us what we were not doing for ourselves, as is often the pattern in Scripture. He scatters them. And then what does he do? He calls upon Abraham. And for many of us, this is this turning point in the story of God and his relationship to humanity. In Genesis chapter 12, this is a direct and intentional response to Babel. 
He calls Abraham, at that time, Abram, and says in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's response to wrong unity in Babel is seeking unity and greatness through glorifying his name. He sets a plan into motion to bless all of humanity in all of its diversity through the family of Abraham and ultimately, we know, through Jesus. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham whose mission was explicitly anti-Babel. Think about the contrast of Jesus to Babel. Rather than seeking his own glory, Jesus allowed God to glorify him. Rather than building a kingdom with unity through uniformity and force, he builds his kingdom with self-giving love for the sake of all the world and all its diverse people. You can hear it. Again, I love John 17. I feel like it's such a core scripture for us to, to meditate on. He says this again in the night that he was betrayed as he's praying to the Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's not glorifying himself. He's allowing God to glorify him. Skip down to verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may become perfectly one. What does he say? So that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. The work of Jesus is anti-Babel. And what happens following his life and death, resurrection and ascension is the setting into motion of a plan, which is part three. Babel undone, Pentecost and the early church. I'm moved by this idea that diversity is at the heart of God's nature at the center of his, of his redemptive designs, and it's something that he desires greatly for his spiritual family. More on that next week from, from Brent on spiritual family peace. And yet, this isn't just an idea that we acknowledge and affirm, that we admire. We're not here to just agree collectively that diversity is good, yeah. If you're part of the church-like region, chances are you, you already enjoy being in a culturally diverse place. Not to say that we've arrived, but like we're more diverse than many churches in this country. We have a greater calling, not just to congratulate ourselves for being in the same church as one another, but to know and love one another deeply. To actually thrive in unity in the midst of diversity as bearers of this image of God taking part in this Babel antithesis. So how? That begs the question, how are we to be one? How can God expect us to live together in unity and in diversity? Well, first of all, the Bible makes clear that Jesus has sent a helper for us in this, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that we've already been talking about. And I think that 
What we see happening when the Holy Spirit arrives on the scene is really noteworthy. So let's look at what happens when it comes to diversity when, when the Holy Spirit descends on the early church. Acts chapter 2 says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. When the Holy Spirit arrives on the day of Pentecost, it says men from every nation under heaven were gathered there. They had come to Jerusalem. And the Lord begins calling people to himself. And notice that what happens isn't merging, isn't melding into one language, into one culture, into one group. Everyone who had come to Jerusalem on sort of this religious pilgrimage to practice Judaism from all over the known world, they weren't suddenly granted the ability to speak one single language and to assimilate further into this monoculture of Judaism. Here what we have is the opposite. God once again acts according to his own diverse nature and his longing for unity in diversity, and he makes himself known among all the nations that are gathered. He facilitates the establishment of his kingdom and his glory by the same pattern that we see in Genesis. The church itself became fruitful. It multiplied, and it dispersed throughout the whole world. But something I, I want to make pretty clear is that the kingdom of God didn't just need a Google Translate feature. It wasn't a matter of just getting the message to everyone. Thriving diversity is about the presence of true unity within that diversity, of reconciliation between people, of removing the things that divide us. We're united because we're under one Lord, Jesus our Savior. I want to return briefly to the, the verse that we had uh, read in the announcements. Ephesians chapter 1, 7 to 10. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In verse 10 there, the, the Apostle Paul is helping us understand God's plan of salvation is much more magnificent than individual people confessing and repenting of their sins, getting fire insurance so that they don't go to hell and you know, when they die, they know where they're going. It's, it's more than that. It's th that is undeniably magnificent. But the gospel is God's plan to unite everything in Jesus Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth, everything. Think about how exciting this is. I know that when I think about this, I'm awestruck. I'm filled with hope. I'm filled with wonder to think of every tear and rupture of the universe being healed. 
of Jesus' rule and reign over everything and everyone. That will be so good. This is where things are headed. This is where we can place our hope and we can take heart in remembering that. We can pray, come Lord Jesus, would you make it so? Now Regen, let's not forget the church is actually called to be a real-time, tangible expression of a future reality, of that reality, of every rupture and tear healed and mended. The universe and the world are, are lofty and beautiful things to hope in for the healing. But here and now, we're to be a communion, a visible communion of human beings that anticipate that ultimate union of things in Christ. We're to be a living sign of Christ's work because he reconciles us to God and to one another by the power of his Holy Spirit. Reconciliation is key to our unity. Hear me well here. Refusing to pursue reconciliation with your brothers or sisters among you within the body of Christ is akin to resisting the heart of God. It means resisting the calling that we've been given as people of God. Christ tears down the walls of hostility that divide us, making us into friends who were former enemies. He makes us equals in the faith. Ephesians 2 speaks to this specifically. It's speaking of Jews and Gentiles. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. The early church was a beautiful, beautiful example of this. And I feel like sometimes what the early church was and how it's evolved into the church as it is today, we've lost something of this. Let's look at this. The early church had this incredible mix of people that normally wouldn't be found sharing life together in united spaces and in such intimate ways. The first century world in the Roman Empire was full of people from different backgrounds. It wasn't that, you know, in Jerusalem everybody was the same. No, there were, there were lots of different people all around. There were Jews who themselves were spread out all over the Roman world, and they had synagogues and their, their far-flung outposts, but they became sort of enclaves of Jewish culture. And it wasn't uncommon, actually, for, as we saw in Acts 2, for Gentiles to fully convert to Judaism, to go through the whole thing, circumcision, adopting the laws, everything, and becoming Jewish. There was sort of integration sometimes that happened that way, through assimilation. And some Gentiles were also not necessarily willing to go all the way, but they were God-fearers at that time. It was, it was a known category for people uh, to become admirers of the God of Israel and stop short of full conversion. But in places like Antioch, where the gospel went following the arrival of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, the church became this amazing, culturally dispersed and multi-equal assembly of people that were unified and there were no existing labels for what that was. People couldn't make sense of what was going on. And so in Acts 11:26, it tells us that this is where a new term 
came into existence to describe this just unprecedented mix of people in Antioch. They came to be known as those of Christ, or what we use today, the word Christians. There wasn't a need for that term. You could just say you were a follower of Jesus. But in Antioch, no one knew how to categorize this blend of people, this rich mixing um, and, and unity amidst diversity. Didn't require assimilation. It didn't create hierarchy within itself. Regen, this is our heritage as followers of the way of Jesus. He's the one who commissioned his church, Jesus, in Matthew 28, to go and disciple all the ethnoi, literally from the Greek, the people groups of the world. And we know that this great commission, this uniting of all people under Christ as Lord, will one day be fulfilled. Amen. It'll be fulfilled at the end, which leads us to the next part. In the end and forevermore, nations gathered around the throne of God. We started this message at the beginning or before the beginning when it was just God. And now we're arriving at the end. And spoiler alert for those of you who haven't gotten to this part of the story. Revelation tells us what things are going to be like in the end. In the days when God's kingdom rule is fully established and all the saints are gathered together. It's beautiful. Revelation 7 says this. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I find these end scenes of the Bible a little bit curious because I, I could imagine personally that when we see God, when we're transformed, when our sinful nature is no more, when God is living with humanity forever and making all things new, I could imagine that he would invite us into like a new heavenly culture, into a, a heavenly language that we would all speak together, into new heavenly identities that are far superior and better than anything that's been corrupted by the world and by this life. But no, the new humanity that God has been desiring from the beginning, from Genesis, and has redeemed by the blood of his son, is one that retains its identity as the human family that has done what he commanded, that has been fruitful, multiplied, filled the earth, become beautiful and diverse. And they're knit together into this beautiful community of oneness, but not uniformness. The many are reconciled as a unified yet diverse whole that is called the body of the Lamb. And the voice will then go out from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's where we're headed. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, and I find it he often has a way. He says, it takes all sorts to make a world or a church. This may be even truer of a church 
If grace perfects nature, it must expand all our natures into the full richness of the diversity which God intended when he made them. And heaven will display far more variety than hell. Part five, thriving diversity, life as a body at Regeneration Church. I want to end this message with some thoughts on Regen, on our calling to be this real, tangible expression of this future reality. And again, we're, we're called to be a visible communion, togetherness, intimate sharing between human beings here and now, one that's anticipating this ultimate union of all things in Christ. We're called to be a living sign of Christ's work because he reconciles us to God and to one another by the power of his spirit, the same spirit that was sent during Pentecost. I want to keep it simple, but I, I think that this unity in diversity, this reconciliation to one another by the power of the Spirit happens when basically three things take place in our lives. The first is, it begins with this full submission to Christ as Lord of all our lives. I'm not sure where each of you are um, in terms of who you call Jesus, whether he is Lord truly of your life, maybe Lord only in name, maybe partial Lord of your life. But I will say that unity in diversity outside of Christ is Babel. When we are in Christ and submitted to him as our Lord, he's able to unify us. It means allowing Scripture to actually become integrated into every aspect of our lives. The Lordship of Christ is submission to his word. It means experiencing life with the Holy Spirit. You know, that's our vision statement. Inviting others to follow Jesus and experience life with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit unifies us and overcomes a multitude of incomprehensions, of, of misunderstandings of one another. It means... Humility, like, can we recognize that pride is an enemy here? Pride causes us to consider our own ways and our own differences to be superior from the ways and the differences of others. And unity means following in the footsteps of Christ. It means oftentimes sacrifice. It means paying a, a cost as we bear with one another as we endure uncomfortable conversations, as we seek to learn from one another and listen and forgive one another. So that's the first one. We will be truly thriving in our diversity to the degree that we fully submit to Christ as Lord of all our lives. The second one, we will thrive in diversity as we embody the self-giving love of Christ that we have received. We just talked about whole life service. This is where the rubber meets the road. It's in community. It's in fellowship with others that are not like us, that are different across all sorts of ways, life stage, singleness, marriedness, every single way in which we're different. 
Love is at the core of all of this. Embodying the self-giving love of Christ means that this binding glue that holds us together will be expressed in compassion, in kindness, in humility, in meekness, in patience, and a huge whopping load of seeking and receiving forgiveness. I want to underscore that. Because if we're to be together, things are going to get messy. And we're going to need to forgive each other a lot. But it's worth it. And it's what God wants. Last one. We'll get closer to thriving diversity to the degree that we intentionally participate in the communion of saints. This is where it becomes real, Regen. We have home groups we've talked about. We just launched a whole bunch of new home groups. I wonder sometimes if the, the group of people that participate in home groups at our church is just this rotating you know, seat of a, a core group of Regen, and then there's, there's those who sort of sit on the sidelines, who sit on the outside, and don't really want to be that involved. But that's where unity and diversity can happen, is where life is shared with one another. And here's a question for you. It's one that there's a pastor out in New York named Rich Viotas. He posted recently, and I, I thought it was so profound. When you look at a, at a church, is our church's growth in unity because people are changing? Is it because people are listening deeply, loving well, wisely, negotiating differences? Or are we becoming more unified because people are leaving? It's pretty easy to have a, a unified church when those who are you know, feeling uncomfortable, when those who maybe feel like they don't align or agree with everything going on in the church, with those who have their own preferences that aren't being met by the church, just find the door and leave. The people who are left are like, yeah, I'm okay with how things are. That's not what we're seeking here. We're not seeking to weed out those who, you know, aren't feeling welcome here. We want to welcome everyone here. Unity and diversity happens when we love those that we disagree with. When we don't just disengage. When we actually go through the pains and the hardships of reconciling with each other. I want us to, to reflect on all of this on the, the submission to our Lord to the utmost, on the embodiment of self-giving love of Christ, on the intentional participation in the communion of saints as we go into our time of, of communion. Um, and if any of you want to learn more about this topic, want to go deeper, apart from kind of digging into the scripture and the passages that we've talked about today, there are so many others as well. Um, I, I also recommend checking out a book by uh, a guy named Erwin Ince called The Beautiful Community, indebted to him and to his book for many of the ideas that I shared this morning. So I can share that with any of you afterwards if you want to chat with me. Let's pray before we enter into a time of communion. Jesus, forgive us for commoditizing your gospel, for making it about us and our own feelings, our own salvation. Lord, it's so much bigger than that. For the sake of the world, for the sake of all people, for the sake of unity within diversity, Lord, would you stir in us, first and foremost, just a deep desire to know you, to experience you, to experience unity with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
God who is beyond our comprehension, God who is holy and other than us, would we fall down at your feet before all else? And Lord, as we know you, as we know your heart, would we be propelled into seeking that unity with others, with our brothers and sisters? Holy Spirit, would you convict? Would you gift us with everything that we need to be one? Lord, as a church, uh, we seek your forgiveness for the ways in which we have discouraged diversity, for the ways in which we have promoted a unity that is not diverse. Lord, would you create at regeneration a family that can contain and embrace, honor and appreciate and love all the variety that exists within your creation? Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion with you, would we also remember that we commune now with each other because we are unified in you. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. So we're going to prepare to take communion uh, for those who didn't pick up uh, the elements on your way in. You can raise your hand and we'll have someone coming around to provide those. Let's remember together now that at the Last Supper, before laying down his life for the world, we're told that Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's hold off on taking the communion just yet. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I'd like for us as we take communion to consider that communion, this participating in the blood and body of Christ is not just about you and your individual remembrance of Jesus' saving work. It's also about what God has done to make us one people who were not a people before. To form us into a body that can be broken itself and poured out and renewed for the sake of the world. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. There's more going on, and I don't even fully comprehend it, as we receive this sacrament of communion with our Lord. There's something that should be happening in our hearts that draws us together as one as well. So I'd like for us to um, find someone next to us and offer the sacraments to each other and use these words. You can say, this is the body of Christ broken for us. This is the blood of Christ shed for us. So I invite you to stand Find someone next to you and say those words. This is the body of Christ broken for us. This is the blood of Christ shed for us. Let's take this bread and this cup in participation in the blood and body of Christ. In his death 
in his suffering, his resurrection, as one body.